I think of all the things that I studied and researched for this series of messages, nothing affected me as much as the stuff that I did in preparation for this message. Somewhere along the line, I shifted from the mentality of a teacher to that of a learner. As I was humbled by how little I actually knew and how much I had to learn on this subject. And so it's in that frame of mind that I'm coming to you this morning, not so much as a teacher, but as someone who's on a journey of learning. And I invite you to listen in that same frame of mind. As someone who's going to learn and not with a preached brother mentality, just hoping that I would say things you already agree with. That's why I preached that previous message first, so that you have a clear idea and conviction of where I stand biblically. Because if I had preached this message first, you might have wondered. So I really want to invite you on a journey today. A journey that some of you might begin for the first time and others might just continue. This message is not so much headed towards a destination where each point builds upon another point. But rather I just want to give you some things to pack for the journey. Some things you might expect along the way. Some lines of thought and ideas with which you need to start grappling, both individually and in community. Because that's where I'm at right now. And like I did last week, I want to take a few moments to speak to three different subgroups of people that might be listening to me here, live on stream, uh, on, uh, on live stream, and then maybe later on on the video. So I don't know who will listen. First of all, I want to speak to the majority of us who are heterosexual followers of Jesus. The first thing I want to say to you that the Bible does not place the sin of same-sex expression in some separate category by itself as if it's the worst imaginable sin. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Rather, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor dunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, it certainly includes people who are involved in a same-sex lifestyle. But look, six of the sins there have nothing to do with sex. And they're all included in that list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to be aware of that. that we're all sinners desperately in need of saving grace by Jesus. Have we sung about So let's remember that. And Paul in Titus says something very similar. He said, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. And this isn't some fancy modern translation. This is the ESV translation. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It calls for tremendous humility on our part. And one more thing, one more thing to to the majority community here. For those of us who might be exercised about the, the def, redefinition of marriage that's taking place in our society. Can I say something? I borrowed this line from my son. That heterosexuals have been destroying marriages long before any gay community ever tried to redefine it. And for those of us who, and we established a biblical basis for marriage as one man, one woman for life last week. But tell me, you who are so exercised, 
Are you loving your wife like Christ loved the church? And wives, are you, are you submitting to that loving leadership? If not, perhaps that's where we should focus first. So those are some comments to the majority of us. Then I want to speak to some of you here who may be struggling with same-sex attraction. Maybe even involved in the lifestyle. But you've come here for whatever reason. Perhaps you feel connected to Jesus. You love the worship. And we thank you for that. And I would encourage you to do what all of us need to do. Please keep listening to the voice of Jesus. As we learned last week, we need to go to Jesus with the scriptures. We need to come to Jesus in this time of community and worship. So we just encourage you to journey with us, but journey to the feet of Jesus. And then, just in case there may be a few of you who are part of the GLBT community who are not followers of Jesus, as I mentioned before, we don't have a common ground in terms of uh, scriptures. But today's message has a lot more to do with relationships, which is obviously very pertinent for you as well. So thank you for listening to With that, we're ready to begin. And I want to begin by talking about the problem of labeling. If you follow the news of what's going on south of the border, and I often tend to follow that a lot more than what's happening in our own country, most more interesting most of the time, Uh, you're aware of the terrible riots in the city of Baltimore during this past summer, where there was a long, and it's become a nationwide polarization between some members of the black community, Afro-American community, and the policemen. And Fox News on August the 28th was interviewing a man by the name of Ed Silvoso, who's actually a Latin American evangelist. And they were discussing a proposal that he had a national strategy for reconciliation in this area. And when they asked him, what was the heart of your strategy? He said, it is to get each local community to adopt their local cop. So that, and start praying for him. So that they actually have a relationship with people. He said, because right now the problem is, there are two nameless groups that are facing each other. And it suddenly occurred to me that weren't exactly the same kind of situation. The evangelical church and the GLBT community. In fact, those very terms are contributing to the problem. Because once you label a group of people with a label, you do not have to deal with them as individuals anymore. Uh, this is where the book comes in that I'm going to recommend for you. There are about 20 copies of the book. I hope all of them are bought. From one perspective, this entire sermon is to persuade you to read that book. It's written by Andrew Marin. The book is called Love is an Orientation. Let me tell you a little bit about him. In his own words, until the age of 19, he was a Bible-thumping homophobic who constantly spoke in a very derogatory manner about members of the GLBT community. Until in the, in the summer after his freshman year at college, something unexpected happened. Over a period of three months, three of his closest friends came out. Two lesbians and one uh, gay individual, man, man. And he was shocked. Now he could no longer hate those people. They were his friends. So he said, to the, he said, Lord, why have you given me three friends in the community that I've spoken against more than any other community? And he said, as I continued wrestling with that, he said, I felt the spirit prompting me to do something. He said, I determined to invest the next nine years of my life just getting to know these people. So he moved into a boy's town in Chicago. And he lived there for nine years, immersing himself entirely and totally in the gay community. Now, Something else happened in parallel. Because he was on an athletic scholarship for baseball in the university, he had started a Bible study for athletes the previous uh, term. And there were about seven athletes who were attending this Bible study. A few weeks after his le- lesbian friend came out, she said, can I come to your Bible study? He said, I don't know. I wouldn't know why you'd want to come there, but you're welcome. She came. She liked it. She told a couple of other friends of hers in the GLBD community. 
Within six weeks, there were 36 people from that community in the Bible study, and the seven straight people left. They couldn't handle it. <laughs> he started getting calls from all over Chicago, from the, from the GLBD community, and in a matter of months, there were 100 people in that Bible study. And on one occasion, two men who were partners pulled him aside and said, we have left our gay-affirming church, which is a church that, that believes in the kind of hermeneutics we talked about last week, and that we refuted, and we have started worshipping here in this community. So he started asking them two questions. Why do you come and why do you keep telling your friends to come here? This book came out of that kind of a response. Now that's a book worthwhile listening to. No wonder it had such a powerful impact upon it. It's unique. The book's unique when it comes to this particular culture. And so it was a summer of learning for me. And I decided to structure this sermon around seven things I've learned and I'm still continuing to learn. And the list is by no means complete. Even in the process of writing the sermon, five, five became seven. And this is what humbled me. This is what shifted me from a mentality of a teacher to that of a learner. First of all, we've already learned there's a spiritual hunger in this community. That's what this Bible study story told me about. There's a spiritual hunger in this community. Not all of them, just like there's a spiritual hunger among everybody in the heterosexual community. But there's a spiritual hunger in this community. It's the first thing I learned. Second thing I learned was that words actually matter. I learned, for example, that they do not like the term homosexual. Because in their mind it sets off an inevitable domino effect. Homosexual equals Bible equals Christian equals fundamentalism equals anti-gay equals anti-me. That's a six-step domino that happens that fast when we use that word. And Andrew Marin talked about uh, a gay man who approached him in the street one day and said... He said, hey, last week a colleague of mine, a Christian woman, came and apologized to me for having used that word to describe me. He said, I just broke down and wept. In fact, he wept while he was telling him this, and this is what he said. He said, I've never had anyone apologize to me before for calling me a homosexual. I never realized how much it would impact me. It is something that I never thought would happen, and it meant the world to me. I look at her totally different, because to say that, she must have really cared. And then the next week he got a letter from the woman when she, she was telling him, because she learned some of these things from him in a, in a course that he teaches. And she said, when I sh- sh- shared this with my friend at work, he broke down and wept and thanked me. And then this is what she said. She said, I never knew one little apology and an omission of one word would give me such an opportunity to talk about God. He can't stop asking me questions. I guess he feels safe now. Now, this has nothing to do with capitulating to some gay agenda. This is basic relational respect at work. When we discover something doesn't make sense or is an obstacle, we can find another way to relate. So I learned that words matter. Then I learned something about how gay pride parade started. Now, most of you probably have the same reaction that I do when gay pride comes along. In my mind, there's immediately the photograph that will be in the newspaper the next day, which usually involves a float, people in various stages of undress, behaving in a way that is extremely unseemly. But that's not how it started. I didn't know that. Uh, according to most of the research that Andrew Marin did, the modern-day gay movement basically had its beginnings on June 28, 1969, when they rioted in the, city of, in the streets of New York City for the first time. It was to protest a police raid on an underground gay bar that was mafia-owned. But the reason why these cops regularly did that, apparently, was to threaten them. They would threaten them with public exposure or threaten them with public arrest. And in 1968, that was a risky thing to do unless they got paid. It was pure extortion. 
And if the cops did that to any other subgroup, we'd be up in arms. Well, they were up in arms. And that day they marched. It was called the Stonewall Inn because that was the name of the, of the, of the bar. And so Andrew Madden writes this. He said, it's a little known fact that originally all of the gay pride parades around the country were held at the same time during the last weekend of June in order to commemorate the stand at Stonewall Inn. What Christians see as a blatant in-your-face act was originally intended to peacefully remember those who stood up and fought for the first time against social and cultural oppression. Now, of course, today it has become this issue. Today's pride, same sin that all of us struggle with. But that should not obscure how it all got started. Well, I didn't know that, so I was kept learning. The third thing had to do with the whole issue of choice. Now, this is the famous nurture versus nature debate. Were people with same-sex attraction born that way? That means it's all by nature. Uh, or did things happen to them or didn't happen to them as a result of which they began to experience same-sex attraction? That's the nurture argument. Or is it just a pure and simple choice which could have been otherwise? Well, again, reality is a lot more complicated. To put it all into one little box is back to the labeling issue. It's convenient for us, but it's wrong. I discovered that reality is a mess of a whole lot of things. First of all, for some people, it is a choice. In one of the books I was reading, I think the book called Getting Rid of the Fantasy Factor, the author talks about a woman named Cynthia Nixon, who I understood starred in a TV series called Sex and the City. And in an interview with New York Times Magazine, she talked about her uh, lesbian lifestyle, and she said, for me, it was a choice. It's plain and simple. And I knew somebody personally, and I have the family's permission to share this. They're not from this church. Uh, that as far as I could tell, she had no indications of any same-sex attraction growing up. As an adult, she fell in love with a handsome man, married him, not as some gay people do in order to suppress those feelings and hope things will change, but by a purely normal heterosexual attraction. Again, I, I was involved in preparing them for that. As far as I could tell, there were no problems in the sexual dimension of their lives. The marriage got into trouble for other reasons, and the marriage broke up. And a short time after that, she decided to choose a lesbian lifestyle. And the gay hermeneutic of scripture that we looked at last week. There's a clear case of choice. Nothing but plain and simple choice in those cases. In other cases, it's a lot more complicated. Uh, psychological factors play a significant role. Apparently, the first study was done by King and MacDonald in 1992, which showed the importance of early experiments, uh, experiences, sorry, especially repeated, and especially involving childhood incest. Those kinds of things can often predispose a person towards this kind of thing. I know of an individual myself, uh, at the age of 12, was abused by a man, and this produced all kinds of gender identity at, from the age of 12 on, when much of this thing is forming. Uh, beginning to experience same-sex attraction, he desperately tried to prove to himself he was normal by going into pornography. Uh, eventually even got married. That marriage failed and then ended in the gay lifestyle after that. So there was a clear case where psychological issues associated with background events uh, were responsible for that. And then I came across a third character. Andrew Marin introduced me to him. By the way, one of the values of this book was it is chock-a-block full of stories about individuals. No more labels possible. I cannot think of this community under those five word titles anymore. Individual names of people come to my mind and their stories. And that's a huge value of this book. 
His name was John, probably not his real name. He was born into a Christian family with Christian brothers and sisters who loved the Lord and he loved God too. He went to a Christian high school. He was actively involved in the youth group of his church. He attended the largest, most well-known evangelical university in his country. He was elected to the prestigious position of student body president. But a secret that nobody knew about that he did was that from the age of 15, he first began to experience same-sex attraction with no, none of these psychological factors operating before him. And so he decided to pray one prayer every night. Lord, when I wake up, I want to be straight like everybody else. He prayed that prayer every night for 15 years. Has anybody in this church prayed about anything for 15 years? That's what broke my heart. And every morning he woke up dejected and broken hearted because of course things didn't change. So he gave it another four years. And finally at the age of 34 he concluded one of two things must be true. Either God doesn't exist at all in which case I can go ahead and live any way I want or I am already condemned to hell because he hates me and so I might as well live the lifestyle any way I want. I can't look at a man like that anymore and say it was all your choice. It wasn't. So reality is complicated I learned. Where then is the... Oh, man, by the way, Marin discovered something else. He said, the majority of GLBT people whom I have met over my nine years of being immersed in the community, believers and non-believers, black and white, men and women, have told me the same thing. When they first realized their same-sex thoughts and attractions, they started to pray that God would take those unwanted feelings away. Even atheists have told me that they were willing to put their unbelief in God aside in the hope that he would make them straight, like everyone. Does this sound like choice? It doesn't. So it's a complicated issue, this nurture versus nature debate. And we need to be humble enough to acknowledge that it's complex. And not label anybody with one particular thing. All three factors, possibilities are there. But where then is the choice? There is a choice. The choice is in what you do with the feelings, right? The choice is in what you do with them. And this was my next learning on the whole subject of identity. Here's another story. In June, we had a seminar in our church called uh, The Church and Same-Sex Attraction. It was put on by Journey Canada. Just excellent. And the present leader of that organization uh, shared his testimony before he introduced us to this, to one of the most critical learnings for me. So let me tell you his story. I, I, I copied it down with hastily written notes, so I might get some details wrong. So if he's ever listening to this, please, my apologies for missing the detail. But I've got the main story absolutely right. He also grew up in a good Christian home. He went to a good evangelical church with sound conservative theology. He knew what the scriptures taught on the subject because when he was young, he had seen a man kicked out of the church for acting out his same-sex attraction. Which, by the way, he had already begun to experience himself at the age of 15 for the first time. When he went for help, he was given the usual biblical platitude. Somebody even tried to cast a demon out of him. It didn't work. He experienced a true conversion to Jesus at the age of 19, but he said, really, what fascinated me about Jesus was his absolute courage to stand up for justice issues. When God did not answer his prayers for change, he also prayed to be changed. He made a deal with Jesus, whom he loved. He said, okay, he, he put a date on the calendar. He said, you need to change me by that date if this is wrong. 
Of course it didn't happen. So he concluded that God was perfectly happy with him. And that's when he went into a lifestyle. Power and riches became his goal. He went to an, got an Ivy League education, got a beautiful job, a wonderful apartment, a car, an apartment. And he thanked God for all of these things throughout the whole process. And he said, one day God put his finger on me. He said, John, I have more for you. He said, I knew enough to know that it was the voice of Jesus speaking to me. So he left his partner to keep listening to the voice of Jesus. And he said, I also began to hear him say to me, to listen to my voice means you're going to suffer. And he said, I found myself sometime later in a church. Praying on a cold stone floor with the pastor of that church who said, John, I'm willing to pray with you so that you and I can together hear the voice of Jesus. And here he was standing before us 29 years later. Still with the same same-sex attraction. But married with children. Not married for the sake that some of them get married to. To try and prove to themselves that they are different. What did Jesus do for him? He drew a diagram that I'll never forget. Which is I think where the choice issue firmly and fairly belongs. That we can be categorical about. He drew a circle. He said this is my identity. Who I am. He drew a square in the middle of that. She hashed He said that's my same sex attraction. Notice how the square takes up almost the entire circle. He said this was my identity. My identity was gay. He said, what did Jesus do for me? He said, he didn't take away the same-sex attraction. He didn't. What he did, he said, was to massively expand my identity in Christ. (laughs) So that I no longer see myself primarily defined by my sexual attractions. Which, by the way, is actually true for all of us too, folks. He said, I see myself as a child of God, relating to God through belonging to Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he said, actually, God is dealing with me some other issues that are much, much bigger than my same-sex attraction right now. I'll never forget this diagram as long as I live. And he says this. I learned one more thing about identity, by the way. He talked about how this is what happens. For most people, it is somewhere between the ages of 12 to 15 that they begin to experience same-sex attractions for the first time. It takes them approximately nine more years to get that settled into a core identity. That's for the left-hand side of the picture. For people who want to follow the right-hand side and get it integrated through your identity in Christ, it takes another nine years on average. And he said, this is the key thing. The direction in which they go depends almost entirely on who they are talking to. Can you see the massive implications of that for us as families and as a church? Because we are living in a society where as soon as any kid even begins to mention same-sex attraction, that's your identity, that's your identity, that's your identity. Get up, act on it, authenticate yourself, you know. is is a key thing. This is the pressure they're getting from the society around us. So, if in our homes and in our churches, we are fearful or worse judgmental about this thing, Guess who are the only people they can talk to? And who is responsible then partly for pushing them in that direction? Our churches and our homes are going to have to become places where any kid beginning to wrestle with these kind of things is totally safe to be able to talk about them. So we can get on that stone floor with them and pray that they will listen to the voice of Jesus with us. It's pretty massive implications, right? That's why I said if I had to pick any one of all my learnings, this one was a massive one.
something else I learned very closely related to this is that our goal above all when, when we are in a relationship with the members of the GLBD community is to bring them to Jesus first. As John's story told, not John, sorry, this part, the leader of the journey movement said, it was listening to the voice of Jesus that made all the difference, not the lectures. In fact, he misunderstood the scriptures. He thought God was quite happy with his understanding of scriptures. But he knew the voice of Jesus. And he kept listening to that voice of Jesus. So what is it that we need to bring people to most? What do they need most? To bring people to the voice of Jesus, right? I can't remember where I got this article. It was written by some, that it was entitled Gospel Centered Reformation. This is what one person said. We have failed to offer Christ to the gay and lesbian community. We have also failed by giving the impression that orientation change and reparative therapy is the solution. Sanctification is not getting rid of our temptation, but pursuing holiness in the midst of it. If our goal is making people straight, then we are practicing a false gospel. That may happen for some people, and that may be appropriate. But to make that as a target for everything, whereas the issue is getting that identity right, which means they got to listen to the voice of Jesus. Let me give you a couple of examples of how this worked out. And, and all of this came to my attention in the last month. God has been so gracious to confirm these learnings in so many ways. Uh, some of you know that I meet with a group of young pastors. I should say younger because some of them are not all that young. They're just young compared to me. <laughs> and we, about nine of us, we meet together about four times a year. So it's for an informal mentoring time. Really, I learn as much from them as they learn from me, probably more now. You know. And one of them, and I was telling them about this series that I'm doing and the things that I'm learning. And one of them told me an interesting story. He told me about a married lady in his church who was a self-professed Christian but had left her husband and become a temporary lesbian, proved to be temporary, lesbian relationship with her female counselor. She also had a lot of generational issues, especially significant incest issues in the background. So she had been coming to her pastor for ministry in that area, and he had been faithfully and gently ministering and leading her, and it involved a lot of listening to Jesus, as any of you know who have been involved in inner healing prayer and stuff like that, bringing Jesus into that past and allowing Jesus to speak to the person is such a crucial part of that. They need to hear Jesus speak to them, not just humans, Jesus. So she was quite used to that already. And so nearly at the end of this time, by which time the temporary relationship had ended, she said, Pastor, what do I do with my same-sex attraction feelings? Now, in the past, he had actually taken her through all the scriptures that we talked about last week. And she politely listened but rejected it all. This time, when she asked again, he said, my normal reaction would have been to just take her through the whole scriptures again. He said, but I felt this strong, strong urge to instead say, why don't we ask Jesus to speak to you? He said, I was scared stiff because I figured she would just listen to her flesh and say, oh yeah, he's just telling me to do exactly what I want to do. He said, but I took the plunge anyway. So he said, let's pray together. And he said, Jesus, what do you want to say to your daughter right now? He said, we waited for a while. And then she said, so he said, did Jesus say anything to you? He said, yeah, he told me you're confused. Now that would have been not, 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 not the pastor. She said, Jesus told her that she was confused. Now again, if I was in that position, I'd say, okay, there's my open door now to get right back in with the scriptures. This pastor was wise. He said, what do you think Jesus meant when he told you you were confused? (laughs) He wanted her to know that it was Jesus speaking, not just him. And she said, oh, I think he's telling me this is not my identity at all. (laughs) That these same-sex attractions are due to my issues that happened in the past. This is not my identity. Now, the thing that she resisted earlier on as he taught from the scriptures... And that doesn't mean that's not important. It's crucial. They both belong. 
Listening to the voice of Jesus helped us. Sometimes, not always, sometimes, probably because of our own fears or judgments or whatever, our voice actually gets in the way of people listening to the voice of Jesus. And to show you that this wasn't an isolated example, this past Thursday afternoon, I'd taken some time to pray again, and uh, we, we also meet with the, as a staff for prayer every Thursday from 1.30 to 2.30. So when that was over, I came and sat down again to go over some parts of this message, and I got an email. My brother-in-law, Ravi's organization, is having his founders weekend right this weekend. And I got an email from somebody who was there saying, can you live stream right now? There's an interesting panel discussion on uh, sexuality. So I took, and I didn't have a lot of time. It was a three-hour panel discussion. I only had about half an hour. So I, I tuned in right away, and I caught a gentleman by the name of David Bennett speaking. I didn't get the whole story, but I got enough that, again, it was a clear confirmation from God and further in, in illustration of bringing people to Jesus. Uh, he, he was a practicing homosexual, and he must have been a writer because he talked about doing interviews and whatnot in there. And he talked, when I tuned in, he had talked about a little experiment he had done. I guess he was in a dance hall or something like that. There were a lot of people there. And he was searching for love. What does love really mean? And he gave a bunch of cards to people and said, Can you please write down what you understand and mean by love? He was, I went away completely dejected. Not one of these people could tell me what love was all about. Anyway, he said he, was, he found himself at this largest competition for short films. In the world, somewhere in England, I figured where it was. And the gal who won it was a name by the name of Jean Bier. So he wanted to interview her. And so he went to her and he said, Hey, uh, how did you manage to get into this short film competition? She said, You want a short answer or the long answer? He said, I don't have time for long answers. What's the short answer? She said, God. He said, Oh my goodness. That's the last thing I wanted to talk about. Anyway, because he was interested in the interview, he continued and this gal, she, somewhere along the line, this is where I forget the details, she said, I want to pray for you. And he was quite nervous. He said, but she insisted. So she prayed. He said, and as soon as she opened her mouth, I just started cringing on the inside. He, it was the worst kind of charismatic praying, Jesus, and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I was just dying on the inside. But she just kept praying. And all of a sudden, he said, I heard a voice say, do you want me? He said, three times I heard the voice say, do you want me? And he said, I said, yes. So he said, I told this girl, he said, that was a mistake. Because she said, oh, we're going to pray now. We're going to pray that the Holy Spirit comes into you. He said, no, I've read Leviticus. I've read Romans. There is no hope for me to go into the kingdom of God. God hates me. Didn't stop this gal. She just continued praying. And then he heard a voice say again, do you want my son Jesus as your savior? He said, yes. He said, that's when the love poured into my heart. Now I understood what love was all about. But get this, folks. He still remained in his homosexual partner relationship for two more years. And then God began to speak to him again. And he said, God, you're great and you're good, but you're not corporate. I need somebody that I can touch and feel next to me. That's what my partner gives me. And he said, the next day there was an email with a link to a book. Guess which book? The book I quoted from last week, Washed It With Water by Wesley Hill. And he said, once I finished reading that, I went to God again. And he said, David, I want you to give me your sexuality. No, I can't. He said, David, I want you to give me your sexuality. He didn't say give it up. He said, I want you to give it to me. And he said, as soon as I did, that's when the Holy Spirit of God flooded my heart. And he'd been living a celibate lifestyle since then.
and ministry. He was tears flowing down his eyes as he was telling the story. Do you see how desperately important it is for them to hear Jesus speak? And Andrew Marin sums it up this way. He said, when all is said and done, only God can truly validate and judge anyone or anything. From my vantage point, and this is a guy who spent nine years in that community, he should know. From my vantage point, the GLBT community has been searching with the, within the wrong source. And maybe many of us might be searching within the wrong source too. A, a gay pastor's validation can't get someone into heaven. Nor can a gay politician's or a biologist or a lawyer's or a scientist or a psychologist. And don't you dare forget it, a straight anything's validation of judgment won't be able to send them to heaven or hell either. Only God can. If we could only release control of what might happen down the road in the GLBT person's life when Jesus enters. Can I read that last line again? If we could only release control of what might happen down the road in the GLBT person's life when Jesus enters. My son Vijay told me about an incredible illustration that Braxi Kavi used when he was speaking about it. He said, imagine a bunch of Christians who are all shooting at a target and Jesus is the center. He said, and then you go and see where the arrows landed. He said, every arrow landed on the right. He said, wouldn't you ask a question? Are they interested in take, are they interested in hitting Jesus? Or are they interested in not being left? Are they aiming so far to the right because their goal is not Jesus? Their goal is just, I don't want to be on the left. What a powerful illustration. The focus is Jesus. The focus is bringing people to Jesus. All right, one last thing with that we're finished. I learned one more thing. Marin talked about how, uh, as a result of his immersion in this culture, he learned that when GLBT people, because of those with spiritual hunger, want to come to an evangelical church, there are nine things that they wrestle with whenever they come to church. And here's what they are. He said, how can I possibly relate to Christians in the church environment? Will Christians always look at me as just gay? Will I be able... To be like everyone else in churches, activities, and groups? Do they think that homosexuality is a special sin? Do they believe that I chose to be like this? Do they think that I'm going to hit on them? Do they think that I'm going to abuse their children? Are they scared that I'm going to infect them with an STD or HIV slash AIDS? When will I be rejected and kicked out? And Marin sums it up this way. He said, there is a striking belief in the inevitability that one, if not all of these nine reactions will happen at some point if GLBD people would involve themselves with the Christian church. These nine fears function as a wall around them so he or she won't get hurt. It takes time, patience, and trust to break through such walls. So my question is this. If you were invited by somebody to go to some group and you had questions like this in your mind, would you go? (laughs) So what kind of a church do we have to become? If there is spiritual hunger in this community, if their need is the need for every single one of us, which is to encounter Jesus in the context of a worshipping community that is passionately lifting up the name of Jesus, in the context of which God's truth is preached with both grace and truth, if that is their greatest need and that is everybody's greatest need, what kind of a church do we have to become so that they might actually be willing to come? Well, it's really the opposite of each one of these, right? We need to become a people who are willing to build relationships with actual named people. 
We above all now need to stop looking at them as just gays because that's what we want to teach them. They are not. That their identity is defined by much more than their sexuality as is our heterosexual um, nature too. Identity is much more. So how can we look at them as just this when actually we want to lead them to know you're so much more. And last night on the way out, and I don't have the time, and Bodhi told me a beautiful story about, about how this is exactly what happened when an individual identified themselves as gay and Anne immediately said, oh no, that's not who you are. Talk to her about who she is in, G- in Jesus. You know. and, and her life got transformed in, the, in a matter of a couple of hours. Uh, that they would certainly need to be welcome in, in our smaller groups and stuff like that. And yet we need to acknowledge, no, it's not a special sin. We're all sinners. We're all under the wrath of God. We all need Savior, Jesus. Uh, and yes, we are willing to acknowledge the fact that choice is a complicated issue. That for some, and then lead them to where the choice needs to be on the issue of who you integrate your identity under. And above all, reject all kinds of behavior that come out of fear. And especially the last one, when will I be rejected and kicked out? And again, as I was, Vijay and I were talking, he said, Dad, I told my church two things, especially with regard to the last one. That if anybody ever comes out and says to you they are gay or lesbian, say two things right away to them. Thank you for being courageous enough, and we will walk with you on this journey to bring you to Jesus. So there you have it, seven things that God has been teaching me. And I'm still on this journey, and I just want to invite you to join me with us and see what God does in us and through us as far as relationship with this community is concerned. But the thing that struck me for us, because I'm pastoring this congregation and most of us are not part of the GLBD community. Most of us are not struggling with same-sex attraction, although a good number might be. Our need is exactly the same. To listen to the voice of Jesus. Husbands and wives, you need to listen to the voice of Jesus. Parents and children, you need to listen to the voice of Jesus. You know, a picture just came to my mind. And actually, by the way, yesterday morning in a counseling session, I changed how I do the counseling. A couple came to see me for some issues that they needed to deal with. And I did the first part like I normally do. Uh, Listen, ask questions. And then when I would normally have got to the point where I would then have reflected and given them some input, which is what they came for, right? Because of what I've been learning this week, I thought, no, I'm going to do something different. <laughs> I'm going to say, and I told them, I told, shared with them some of these stories. I said, I said, I'm not going to tell you now what to do. I said, we're going to listen to Jesus. So I explained that to him. I said, I'm going to be quiet for a while. So I'm going to be praying. And I took quite a bit of time to pray. I prayed for five or six minutes, just inviting Jesus into the situation and just waited. I said, you don't have to make it up. See what he says to you. I was interesting. After another four or five minutes of total silence. By the way, if you ever tried silence for five minutes, 30 seconds is about all you can handle it because the noise from the inside starts bubbling up. Which is why most of us don't like silence. So I, I said, what did Jesus say to you? One person broke down with tears, turned to the other person and apologized and asked for forgiveness. I didn't tell them you have to do it. And the second person, interestingly, didn't do the same thing. They said, a question came to my mind. Can I ask the question? And it turned out to be a really good and helpful question. So I'm going to kind of change it. And uh, tomorrow Sham and I leave for our two-week vacation in November. And this is something I want to talk to her about. I thought to myself, what would happen if every time she and I got into an argument about something, rather than each one of us try to convince the other person about something, we set our point that, okay, honey, let's both pray. Let's listen to Jesus. What would happen? What would happen to marriages if they stopped in the middle of arguments and said, let's listen to Jesus? 
What would happen if siblings, parents and children, what would happen if board members in the middle of an argument just stopped and said, okay, let's listen to Jesus. We may not be very good at it in the beginning, but I wonder whether a lot more will be accomplished when Jesus says to them something that you and I are desperately trying to say to each other and it's not getting through. Okay? So it's good that we are able to come to the communion table this morning. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up here and those people who are helping serve the elements if you can make your way to the front. And I want you to think. I want you to think about some situation right now where you have been hearing something perhaps from your spouse, perhaps from your parents, perhaps from your sibling, perhaps from a colleague and you're not sure. People are trying to persuade you of something or you're perplexed. You're in the midst of some decision that's important. Last night we did this in the service. And there was a much smaller group of people. There were about 60 people here. Five people said God spoke. I asked them in the middle of the service, can you put up your hand if God Jesus spoke to you? There were five people who did. You don't have to make it happen, folks. He'll speak if he has something to say to you. Okay? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to commit this next little while into the Lord's hand. We'll do the, we'll do the same thing that we do every communion service. The mechanics will all be the same. But I want you to focus on what's one Jesus, what do you want to say to me today? If you've never heard him speak, this might be the first time you will. I'll tell you this. You listen to Jesus say something to you and you act upon it. You don't want to live any other way. I mean, none of us are perfect. That's not the point. But you look at that, you get a taste for that. And you say, wow. wow. Lord Jesus, I'm just a total neophyte in this. There are people in this congregation who listen to your voice so much better than I do. I just thank you so much that there never is a time when we can not learn anymore. Thank you for the way you gently humble us with what we don't know and invite us on a journey of unknowing. A journey into mystery where we're not in control of what might happen. We never were. We ask you to forgive us for all the time. We control our spouses and we control our children. We try to manipulate our friends. And We want to just make way, Lord, for you to come and speak. Because you said today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Nobody else's voice matters except yours. Mine matters not a whit if it does not reflect your voice and your mind to your people. If what I said is not what you want to say to them, this has been a waste of time. So help them to immediately forget everything that I said that is not corresponding to your voice. May they never forget what was your voice to them today. And so Jesus, as we do what you told us to do, Do it as often as we do it. This is my body. This is my blood. As we eat and drink of it in remembrance and proclaim your coming, will you come now? Will you speak into the specific situations that each one of us is in this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. All of us probably have at least one area in our life where we are absolutely sure we are right, but we are probably not. Maybe partly or totally. This is my blessing for you. This is what came to mind this morning. May he change you from a teacher into a learner in that one particular area of your life this week. In Jesus' name.